Uh, well, if you've got your Bible, uh, open up to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings uh, chapter 18. Next week, we're going to kick off our series uh, for Advent through the beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, but this morning, we've really got kind of a break in the sermon calendar, just kind of an open week between some series. And so uh, what I get to do this morning is what we've just been calling kind of preach your heart. And so something that God has really been uh, stirring up in me, God has been using to uh, change me and convict me and stir my heart up towards Jesus, uh, I get to bring that to you uh, this morning. And so really, this passage in 1 Kings chapter 18, I have not been able to get away from it uh, ever since we studied it earlier in the summer uh, through our men's and women's Bible studies. So that's where we're going to be this morning. Uh, now, uh, I know that it's probably not going to come as a surprise for me to tell you that we as a people, uh, by and large, are a people who have some commitment issues. Uh, and when I say that, I'm, I'm really not talking about relationships, although I do think you see some of that there. Uh, I'm talking about the fact that, that you and I, more than ever before, just have more options and choices available to us than anybody else at any time in history. And so uh, that was really intended to make things easier for us. You know, if we had more options and had more things to choose from, uh, theoretically, it would be easier to make a choice, but it's obviously had the opposite effect, uh, and it makes it really difficult for us to choose and commit to something and stick with something. I'm sure you've had the experience that my wife Braylon and I have all the time of, man, we'll, we'll have kind of a free night to sit down and watch a movie, and so uh, we'll start looking on Netflix and maybe watch a few trailers, flip over to Amazon Prime, see what's over there, and you're like, oh, do you want to watch that one? And it's like, well, is it really worth renting it? Like, do we want to pay for that? And so you go back to Netflix and you watch a few more trailers, and you're like, ah, I just don't know. I don't know if I want to commit to that one, two hours of my life. And then after about 10 or 15 minutes of that, finally, it's like, all right, just put on an episode of The Office. Like, this is a worthless search. We're just wasting our time here. It's, it's the same thing with me for food. Like, I've, I've had uh, dinner every day of my life for 27 plus years now. Uh, but anytime Braylon asks me, like, hey, what do you want to eat tonight? It's like, uh, I don't know. It's like I've never had a meal before. I have no clue what to tell you. I can't decide. You're, you're going to have to spoon feed me. Like, you're going to have to do this and decide for me. Uh, it's why I constantly am reading like six books at a time. It's really not because I'm smart or anything like that. It's because I'll start one, and then it's like, oh, that one looks cool too. I'm going to start that one, and then I do the same thing over and over again. Uh, and so we, we've got these commitment issues where we really just are kind of half in and half out and can't stick with something. And uh, this really doesn't just kind of play itself out in simple things like this. It, it also plays itself out in our spiritual lives as well. Uh, I mean, I'll just confess to you that, that even right now, uh, there are areas in my life where, where I know what obedience to Jesus would look like. I, I know what it would look like uh, to be all in with Jesus and be obedient to where he's calling me, uh, but I just don't want to. Like, I, I just want to keep that for myself. I want to be half in and half out and, and have some control for myself uh, that there are these areas in my life where I just don't want to give Jesus everything and I want to kind of straddle the fence. Uh, and I think that if you were honest with me this morning, you would admit that you have those areas in your life too, that you have these areas where you're kind of half in and half out, where you said, yes, I've decided to follow Jesus, but there's these areas that you just don't want to give up control in. Uh, you're straddling the fence. 
Well, well, this is where we find the people of God as we come to our text in 1 Kings chapter 18 this morning. They are uh, torn between two opinions. They're torn between worshiping God and worshiping idols. And so the prophet Elijah is going to step into this, and he's going to tell them, and he's going to tell us uh, that you can't keep doing this forever. Uh, you can't keep being half-hearted and non-committal in your relationship with Jesus. You can't keep straddling the fence. You have to make a choice. You have to go all in because Jesus doesn't just want some of your life. He wants everything. It's all or nothing. You can't keep straddling the fence. Uh, And the good news is this passage doesn't just tell us that this morning. It doesn't just tell us that we have to make a choice. Uh, I think it actually gives us the cure, the cure for our half-heartedness and our lack of commitment in our relationship with Jesus. I think it actually tells us what it is that will turn our hearts back to him so that we might be all in with him. And so let's look at this together. 1 Kings chapter 18. We're going to start in verse 17. We'll get all the way through verse 40, uh, but we'll just read a little bit and walk through it as we go. Starting in verse 17, the very word of Christ to us this morning. It speaks to us like this. It says, when Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I haven't troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, so let me just catch you up on where we're at in the story of the Bible, because we're much further along than we are in our series in the book of Genesis. And so, uh, by this time, the people of Israel have become a great nation. They have increased and multiplied greatly. They are in the promised land uh, that God promised to Abraham and they have a king. They have a king ruling over them. They're part of a kingdom. And so the book of 1 Kings opens up with King Solomon. And, and for the first half of his reign, he's a really incredible king. But by the end of his reign, he has led all of the people into idolatry. And after his reign, the kingdom splits into two. And you've got Judah and Benjamin, two of the 12 tribes of Israel in the south, uh, who become a kingdom. So they're known as the southern kingdom. And they're called Judah. Uh, And then the other ten tribes split off. They're in the north. They're known as the northern kingdom, and they're called Israel. Uh, And so where we're at here in 1 Kings 18 is we're in the northern kingdom, uh, and the northern kingdom has not had good kings up to this point. They have all been uh, just a bunch of trash bags leading the people astray. Uh, and, And the king that they have right now, King Ahab, is the worst king that they've had up to this point. Chapter 16 tells us that he did more evil in the Lord's sight. He did more to provoke the Lord and lead the people astray than any other king that has gone before him. And and what Ahab has done is he's led the people into false worship, worship of other gods, specifically a a false god named Baal. Uh, He's led the people so that they're torn between these two opinions, trying to worship the Lord and also worship this false god Baal. And so God calls and sends Elijah into this uh, to call his people back to himself. And so Elijah appears before Ahab, and Ahab's like, hey, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now, I find this a little bit ironic because Baal is supposed to be the god of the storm. He's supposed to be the god who controls the rain and the wind and the weather. Uh, But what we find out in chapter 17 is that at Elijah's command, uh, it has not rained in Israel for three years. There's been a massive drought, which obviously... If you step back and think about it, that means either Baal doesn't exist or he's fallen down on the job, right? He's asleep at the wheel, uh, but Ahab's like, no, Elijah, you're the problem with Israel. You're why we don't have any water. Why don't you tell your God to 
to cool off for a second so that my God can bring the rain again. Now, now God is going to bring the rain again and end the drought at the end of chapter 18, but before he does that, he's going to show off who the real God is once and for all. And so Elijah, uh, he claps back with some good Old Testament trash talk. He says, no, I'm not the troubler of Israel. You and your daddy are. Uh, It wasn't your mama jokes that got people back then. It was your daddy jokes that really got under people's skin. Uh, but Elijah is saying, hey, we're not going to play these games anymore. We're going we're gonna to see once and for all who the real God in Israel is. And so Elijah is going to propose a contest uh, to determine who this real God is. Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, Now therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. And so once again, Baal is supposed to be the god of the storm, the god who can bring rain and fertility and growth to your crops, which in an agricultural farming society, uh, that makes him pretty relevant, right? Like that's a pretty important thing for a god to be able to do. And so what's going on here uh, is that the people of Israel, they're kind of going through the motions with the Lord on the Sabbath, uh, but then they're looking to Baal to provide for them and protect them and strengthen them the rest of the week. They're saying things like, yeah, the Lord's good for Sundays, but Baal is my Monday to Friday God. I mean, he's just more practical. He's just more relevant to my life. He's real world. He deals with the real issues. It's not just this kind of abstract theology with him. But Elijah speaks into this, and he says, no, it can't be that way. Uh, You can't keep limping between the two, never actually making a choice, because that in and of itself is a choice. You have to choose one or the other and go all in uh, because these things are mutually exclusive. For them to continue to limp between two opinions, it would be as silly as you being both a Red Sox and a Yankees fan. Like those things are mutually exclusive. You can't do that uh, because part of what it means to be a fan of one of those teams is that you hate the other team. Like, I'll just confess to you, maybe this tells you something bad about me, but as an OU football fan, I get just as much joy out of watching Oklahoma State and Texas lose uh, as I do out of watching OU win. Like, that's that's part of what it means to be a fan. It's in the job description, and it's a non-negotiable. And so, listen, if you've got like a Yankees and a Red Sox hat in your closet right now, you need to go home and throw one of those away. Like, those don't get to coexist with one another. It would be like you having an Android for a phone and then an iPad or a MacBook for a tablet or a laptop. That doesn't make any sense. Like, you've got to declare allegiance to one or the other. You can be one of those weird people that thinks Android stuff is better, uh, or you can get on the winning team with Apple, but you have to make a choice, right? You have to declare allegiance to one or the other. And so Elijah is coming to the people and he's saying, hey, this can't just kind of be Uh, theology that sits in your head. These can't just be facts. You have to respond. Whoever the real God is, and then you go all in with him. You follow him with everything that you've got. You stop limping between the two. 
And so what Elijah is going to do is he's going to propose this contest to determine once and for all who the real God is. Let's look at what this contest is in verse 22. It says, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord, and the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it's well spoken. So he says, hey, you get a bull, I'll get a bull, we'll build an altar, whoever's God answers by fire, that's the true and living God. And all the people say, yeah, that sounds good. Verse 25, then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And so Elijah's like, hey, you guys have already got the advantage, it's 450 on one, we're supposedly in Baal's territory so why don't you guys go first? Like, you pick the bull, you go first. Surely your God is going to end this contest and answer with fire quickly. Look at what happens, verse 26. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. Love this. This is every middle school boy's favorite verse. Verse 27. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry louder, for he's a God. Either he's musing, or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and must be awakened. And so after a few hours of this, Elijah starts mocking them and says, Cry louder. And surely he's a God. Surely he's going to hear you. Maybe he's just lost deep in thought, and you need to kind of wake him up out of it. Or maybe he's on the toilet and he just needs a minute to finish up. Maybe he went on vacation. He wanted to see a new place and you've got to call him back. Or maybe he had a really hard day being God and all and he fell asleep and you've got to yell louder to wake him up out of his slumber. Cry louder. Surely he's going to answer you. I mean, he is God, right? And the funny thing about this is that the prophets of Baal actually listened to Elijah. Look at verse 28. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. That just means the time when the sacrifice was supposed to take place. As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the sacrifice. But there was no voice, no one answered no one paid attention. And so here's, here's the scene. For hours and hours and hours, these prophets, they rave, they yell, they shout, they cry out for Baal to answer them, to listen to them and to answer their cries. They dance around the altar, they jump, they limp around the altar, they cut themselves, they pierce themselves with swords, they pour out the, uh, their blood upon the altar according to their religious custom, and still, after all of that, notice what verse 26 and 29 says. That there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. 
that, that after all of this, they, they work themselves into a frenzy. They scream and jump and shout. They do all of these things, but yet nobody hears, nobody listens, nobody answers. After all of this, it's just radio silence on the other side. And now what it would be real easy to do here is to pull ourselves out of this story and kind of look in at the prophets of Baal and think, oh my gosh, how stupid do you have to be? Like, how dumb are they? How foolish do you have to be to rave on like a madman for hours and jump and shout and cut yourself and pour out your blood and cry out to Baal? Like, don't you know he's not a real God? Why would you do this for a little wooden statue? Don't you know that he can't hear, that he isn't going to answer, that he isn't going to do anything for you? Like, how could you be so stupid? But listen, thinking that way cuts us off from what God wants to say to us in this text. Because idolatry and false worship is not just something that happened back then. Uh, It's something that we still do each and every day. It still happens in us. Like, yeah, sure, we don't bow down to wooden statues, but we do have other things that we look to and try to make them be God for us. I mean, ask yourself some questions. Ask yourself, like, what is it in your life that you're looking to to provide you with your ultimate sense of meaning and identity and significance and security? Like, what's the one thing in your life that you feel like, man, if I could just get that, I'd finally be happy. I'd finally be secure. I feel like I would finally have made it. Life will really take off if I could just get that thing. Or what's the one thing that if you lost it, you'd be absolutely devastated. You feel like you could never move on from that. Life would never be the same again. What is it in your life that causes you the most anxiety or fear or worry about either getting it, keeping it and maintaining it, or losing it? What do you daydream about? Like, where, where do your thoughts run when you're just not really trying to think about anything else? Where do you find yourself keep going back to? Like, whatever that thing is that you just identified, like, you can write it down. That's your idol. That's the God in your life that you are bowing down to. That's Baal for you. And just like the, these false prophets, that's what you're worshiping. Now, I'll give you a few examples of how this plays out. And, and so maybe for you, this idol that you're trying to give yourself over, over to is the approval of others. You feel like that if you can just get more of that, that that will be the thing that satisfies you. Like some of us have just so sold out to the belief that I can, if I can just get a bunch of people to like me and notice me and approve of me, And then that will cure all the insecurities and deficiencies I feel about myself. I just won't have to deal with those anymore. Or or maybe you feel like if I can just achieve a little bit more at work, and if I can just get promoted, or I can just get recognized for that, and then I won't feel so aimless anymore. I feel like my life will finally have some value. And or, or maybe you feel like if I can just get the airbrushed life that other families present on social media then then maybe people will look at me like I look at them and and I won't feel so worthless anymore. I won't feel like so much of a failure. If I could just stop fighting so much with my spouse, I could just get my kids to behave and present that kind of life. 
Or, or maybe for you, it's that you can't say no, and so you say yes to everything, and it pushes out all of the things in your life that really are important, like uh, spending time investing in your family and friends and being in a discipleship relationship with somebody who can help you follow Jesus, uh, but you don't have any time for that because that's been crowded out by all these other things because you can't ever say no to anybody because you don't want them to ever look at you in a wrong way or, or think poorly of you. You don't ever want to not please somebody or let them down. But maybe that's not you. Maybe for you, the thing that you're chasing uh, is comfort and freedom. And so maybe for you, you think like, man, I I'm just so bored. Like, I do the same thing every day. I get up and do the same thing, and it's so meaningless. And, and so you're starting to feel like, man, if you're really going to feel something again, you've got to start going outside of the boundaries and responsibilities that God has placed over your life because that's where real freedom has found. And, and so anytime things get tough, you get a little bit bored or you get a little bit down and pity yourself, uh, you just go to hit the eject button on your responsibilities and on the boundaries that God has placed in your life. And, and you go pursue things that the world tells you are where freedom is found. Because I mean, God wants you to be happy, does he not? Like surely he understands me doing this. Or maybe for you, it's not that you actually go out and do those things, it's that you just fantasize about them instead. And so for you, when you get that feeling of boredom and aimlessness and meaninglessness, and your first thought is, well, I've got to turn to porn and go to porn to look at this, and this will kind of numb this sense of meaninglessness and aimlessness that I feel like it will make me feel better. Or, or maybe what you're doing right now is breaking the 10th commandment and coveting your neighbor's house and just calling it looking on Zillow. Like, man, if I could just get there, if we could just get to that station in life, if I could just get out of Fayetteville and move to this new place, then I know I'll finally be happy. I know I'll be satisfied. I know life will really start to take off when we can just get there. Maybe for you it's power. Like maybe for you, you can think about all the ways that you've either lied or cheated or manipulated a situation uh, to get to where you want to be so that you can leverage that to get more influence and power for yourself. Maybe you can think about all the people, like names are coming to your mind right now, the people that you've maligned and you've backstabbed on your way to the top. Maybe if you were honest with yourself this morning, you could think about all the ways, both big and small, that you've compromised your integrity and, and abandoned your principles to get to the top and to get in a position of influence and power, and you've already justified it by saying, well, well God understands, this is just the cost of doing business, and I'm going to have more leverage for the kingdom and influence for the kingdom if I can get in this spot, and so surely God wants me to be here, surely God wants me to have this. And so you justify all these ways that you're compromising and sinning uh, because you're, you've given yourself to this idol of power. That's what you're chasing after. And, and so listen, like, this isn't just the prophets of Baal. This is us. All of us, if we are honest with ourselves, know that we have given ourselves over to idols, that we have looked to other things to both be and do for us what only God can do and be for us. We have worshipped idols. We are worshipping idols right now. And the scariest thing about this is that our idols treat us just like Baal treats his prophets here on Mount Carmel. 
Look again at what he does. Verse 29. It says, As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the sacrifice, but there was no voice, and no one answered, no one paid attention. Did you catch that? They rave and rave on. They do all these things. But at the end of the day, there still was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And so look right at me. With whatever idol you give yourself over to, no matter how much you work for it, the day is coming for you when you serve that idol and serve that idol only to experience the truth of what verse 29 just said. That there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. With our idols, we will serve them and we will sacrifice for them and we will work and sweat and work and bleed to get what they are promising to give us. But at the end of the day, it's just going to be the truth that they will not hear. They will not listen. They will not answer. They will not do anything for us. You see, when you give yourself over to an idol, whatever it is, and if it hasn't happened already, the day is coming for you when you actually get your idol, when you actually get the thing that you thought would satisfy you, only to realize that it actually doesn't satisfy you, that it can't deliver on its promises at all, that the new job actually didn't fix what was broken in you, that more money actually hasn't made you happy and more free. That yeah, maybe the place you PCS to or the house is new, but it still has the same old you with all of your brokenness in it, and so it can't fix what's wrong with you. That the grass isn't greener on the other side. And so you will get the fulfillment of everything that you've worked for just to realize it doesn't satisfy you, and you will sit in the wreckage of that, and you will realize that this verse is true. That there was no voice. That no one answered that no one paid attention, that after all of your work, it's just radio silence on the other side. And, and listen, like, I, I know that's heavy. I, I know you're thinking like, geez, could we not have just gotten like a Thanksgiving sermon? Uh, keep it light and happy. Don't you realize the extended family I'm going to have to put up with this week? Uh, I, I realize that. But listen, I think we've got to sit with the weight of this if we're ever going to experience real freedom. We have to sit with the weight of what our idols will do to us. It really is this heavy. But the good news is that as heavy as this reality is, it isn't the end of the story. Because while Baal did not answer his prophets, now it's Elijah's turn. And so look at what happens in verse 30. It says, then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. 
And he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. Wouldn't you like to be the guy that has to go up and down the mountain filling up these jars of water? And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And so Elijah says, hey, this isn't going to be tough enough for God. Let's make this a little bit more difficult for him. And so they get 12 jars of water, so much water that it actually fills up. It soaks the bull, the altar, everything. And then it fills up the trench that Elijah has dug around the altar, almost as if it's like a castle with a moat around it. And so clearly... You're not just going to be able to like rub some sticks together or light a match and accidentally set this thing on fire, right? If fire comes, if this altar and this sacrifice is consumed, then it's going to be clear to everybody here that the only way this happened is because God did it, right? Well, look at what happens in verse 36. It says, and at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And so Elijah prays, and in an instant, the fire from heaven falls. God brings the fire. And I love what it says, that it obliterated the bull and it obliterated the altar and the wood and the stones and the dust around the altar. And if that wasn't enough, it licked up all the water that was in the trench. I mean, I just picture the fire falling from heaven and obliterating everything, kind of vaporizing it in an instant. And then you see all the water getting sucked up as it disappears, as God licks up the water out of the trench. I mean, this is just incredible, right? Like God just flexed on everybody and showed off who the real God is. Baal is not God. The Lord is God. Baal is not God of the storm. He doesn't control the weather. The Lord does because he is the true and living God. He is the God who answers with fire from heaven. And of course, when all the people of Israel see this, they fall on their face and they declare, yeah, the Lord, he's God. He is the true and living God. Because what other response is there? Right? Like, if you see something like this, what else can you do but get on your face and worship? Man, and, and right here, it seems like a pretty good time to end the story. Right? We got this epic story. Elijah had some great bathroom humor. Like, yeah, maybe your God's going on the toilet. Uh, God flexed on everybody and lit up this sacrifice with fire from heaven. Like, it was a pretty good day for the Lord. Uh, score one for Elijah and his team. Like, let's get the band back up here. Let's play some songs. Let's celebrate. And let's all walk out of here celebrating how grand and awesome and powerful our God is. That seems how the story should end. And, and that seems like what we should do. But, but that would be wrong because that isn't actually how the story ends. That's not where this takes us. Look at the final verse in this passage and what Elijah does. It says, And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them. 
And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them there. That's a little bit unsettling, right? Uh, you know, why couldn't we have just stuck with the celebration? Uh, God, you, it, you, what you wanted happened. The people turned their hearts back to you. Why can't we just all go home and have a good day? Not what happens, right? Elijah's like, hey, don't let a single one escape. We're killing them all. I mean, he literally takes them down to the brook and makes the water run red with their blood. He massacres them. I, I can just imagine, I'll just take an educated guess, that if you heard this story growing up in Sunday school, that they made sure to leave this part of the story out. Uh, that new God Contest children's book, if you've seen that, uh, the, there's no pictures of Elijah taking the false prophets down to the brook and slaughtering them uh, in the children's book. Because this is unsettling, right? This is uncomfortable uh, that this would be in the text and in the story. And, and so what do we do with this? What do we do with this reality? Well, look, I, I think the reason that, part of the reason that this is so unsettling and uncomfortable for some of us is, is because, honestly, we really just don't take our sin that seriously. We really don't think that our idolatry is that big of a deal, that it would be deserving of this sort of a judgment, but it is. Look, Israel is a theocracy at this time. God is supposed to be their king, and when you have the human king instituting Baal worship as the state-sponsored religion, these false prophets have got to go so that God can bring his people's hearts back to him, so that he can restore and purify the land. But look, even for us who are not under a theocracy, so often we really just don't think our sin is that big of a deal. We really don't think that it would earn a judgment like this. But the, look, the reality is that it is. Like, idolatry is not just stupid. It does not just make us do foolish things like dance around an altar and, and cut ourselves and pour out our blood. Like, it's cosmic treason against a holy God. It is rebellion against the king of the universe, the creator of everything. It, it's not a joke. And it deserves judgment. Like that's why God judges the false prophets and, and puts them to death for this wickedness and for their idolatry. And that's bad news for us, because who do we look more like in this story? Elijah or the prophets of Baal? The prophets of Baal, right? We are idolaters. We have taken other things into our heart and have tried to make them be God for us. We have gone after idols and served other gods, and that earns judgment. We deserve to spend an eternity separated from God, bearing his wrath because of that. That's the bad news. And But the good news is that the story does not end there. Maybe you've been thinking about, as we've walked through this, like, what about the people of Israel in this story, right? Because when we come to this God contest on Mount Carmel, what are the people of Israel doing? Are they wholehearted followers of God? No, right? They're Baal worshipers. They're limping between two opinions, just like Elijah said they were. And so they are just as deserving of judgment and death as these false prophets are, but yet they don't die. They deserve the same judgment, but they don't face judgment. Their lives are spared. Why? What's the difference? 
The difference is the altar and the sacrifice. The altar and the sacrifice. Look back at verses 30 and 31. When Elijah rebuilds this altar of God that has been torn down, notice that it says that he rebuilds it with 12 stones according to the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. And so what's that saying is that this altar stands in for the people of God, that it represents and it symbolizes the people of God. This altar and this bull that is placed upon it as a sacrifice. And frequently throughout the Old Testament, we'll see God accepting a sacrifice by fire uh, and, and pouring out uh, fire as a judgment and as a way to say that he accepts that sacrifice as a payment for sin. And so here at Mount Carmel, when the fire from God, when judgment from God falls down from the sky, it consumes the altar and the sacrifice, but it does not consume the people of Israel. Like they don't die because their representative and their substitute does. It bears their judgment so that they would not have to, so that their lives would be spared. Why? Well, it happens like this because this story is pointing us forward, pointing us forward to the day when this very same God who lit up this sacrifice with fire from heaven on Mount Carmel would actually come down from heaven and would get on the altar at Mount Calvary and would become the sacrifice for us. You see, in the fullness of time, Jesus, the true and living God, he will go to the cross and he will become the sacrifice for us. The judgment and fire of God for our sin will fall on him and he will be consumed so that we could be spared. He will die in our place for our sins as our substitute and our representative. But the good news is that though he will die, he will not stay dead no, this God proves his great power once again by getting up from the dead so that you and I would forevermore know that Jesus, he is God. And just like the fire obliterated everything that was on the altar, Jesus didn't just defeat death. He obliterated it so that the day would be coming where there is no more death and there is no more pain and there is no more sorrow and there is no more suffering, none at all. Like Jesus, the true and living God, he's not just more powerful than idols, he's more powerful than death. Like that's more impressive than fire from heaven when you can literally raise yourself up from the dead. And look, Jesus died for our sinful idolatry as the answer to Elijah's prayer so that we would stop limping between two opinions and we would know and trust and believe that Jesus, he truly is God. That he would do this in us. And, and so how do we do that? How do we stop limping between two opinions? How do we go all in with Jesus and live wholehearted lives for him? Well, we do it by getting our eyes on him. Tim Keller uh, points out that, that every other God, every idol we give ourselves to, that you have to serve them, that you have to sacrifice yourself for them, that you have to cut yourself and slash yourself for them, you pour out your blood for them, that you have to give your time and your energy and your attention to them if they are going to provide for you and keep their promises to you. 
Like if your idol is achievement at work, it's going to demand that you pour out your blood, that you slash yourself for it by just spending a little bit more time at the office and just a little bit more time at home thinking about work until you get to the point where you have so neglected your family and your friends that you've destroyed any possibility of a relationship with them at all. Your God will demand just a little bit more of your effort, just a little bit more of your time at the office, just a little bit more sweat, and I will give you what I'm promising to you, but it never will. Look, if your idol is the approval of others, and then you're going to jump through all sorts of hoops to get people to like you. Your life is just going to be one big dance of you doing things to get people to notice you and approve of you. Or your God is going to tell you, hey, you slash yourself for me, you sacrifice yourself for me as you grind yourself into the dust trying to get the perfect body and image so that people will like you and approve of you. If your idol is power, it will demand that you slash yourself for it by compromising your principles and laying your integrity on the altar. Like there is no compromise that it will not ask you to make if you're going to make it all the way to the top, if it's going to do what it says it's going to do for you. They all say, hey, you slash yourself for me. You sacrifice yourself for me. Pour out your blood for me. Give to me. Give me your time and energy and attention. But no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we sweat, no matter how much we give, no matter how much we labor, they will not hear. They will not listen. They will not answer. They won't do anything for you. Like you will work and work and sweat and bleed and pour yourself out in service of this thing and it won't do anything for you. It won't keep its promises to you. And so every other God says, hey, you slash yourself for me and you sacrifice yourself for me. But look, the good news of the gospel is that there's only been one God who has ever been slashed for you. There's only been one God who has ever sacrificed himself for you. There is only one God who has poured out his blood for you. And there is only one God who hears and answers you. Jesus is the only God who has ever willingly got on the altar and become the sacrifice to turn our hearts back to him. Listen, you get your eyes on that good news and it will change you. Because look, we don't think our way into sin. We worship our way into it. And so we've got to worship our way out of it. We have to see in Jesus something better, something more desirable, something more worth giving our lives to than the idols and other gods that we have been chasing. And the more you'll see Jesus as the God who has done this for you, the more you'll see Jesus as the God who, out of love for you, sacrificed himself for you, and the more that you will. Look, it's not going to happen overnight, but the more that you will sit with Jesus in his word and just get your eyes on his beauty and his value and his weight and his worth, the more God is increasingly going to set you free from an idolatry and and an addiction to the approval of others or to lust or to trying to gain an identity through what you can do. But listen, seeing Jesus and becoming captivated with Jesus is the only thing that's ever going to be able to change you. And I'll just ask you, like, what have your idols ever done for you? Have any of them ever sacrificed for you? 
Have any of them ever served you? No, only Jesus. And so let him do this work in your heart this morning. Let his sacrifice turn your heart back to him. The people of Israel's repentance was short-lived here. But look, ours does not have to be. Because we have something better. Every other God says, slash yourself and sacrifice yourself for me. But this God, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest for your soul. This God did not just send fire down from heaven. He came down from heaven for us. And we don't just have the remnants of a burnt-up altar. We have a cross and an empty tomb telling us that Jesus, he is God. Jesus is the true and the living God. And so you follow him. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for your word. And for the good news that though, uh, just like the people of Israel, we have given ourselves to idols we have served them, we have worked for them, we have looked to them to provide for us. But Jesus, you were consumed so that we could be spared. You took the judgment for our sins so that it would not come to us. And you paid the price for our sins so that our hearts would be turned back to you so that we would know and believe that you are God, that you love us, and that you are for us. Jesus, I thank you for this reality, that though our sin is deep, your grace is even deeper. Uh, Would you help us to identify our idols, identify the places where we're looking to other things to help us and to deliver us and provide for us, uh, thinking that they can be you. And would you uh, free our hearts from the grip that these idols have on our lives? Would you help us to see you as better? Would you help us to see you as more desirable? It's more worth it. Jesus, would you turn our hearts back to you? Only you can do it. And so I pray that you would. In your name, amen.